The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. Are children monsters to tame? Blank slates to fill? Or is there another approach to parenting that we just haven't considered? Hi, I'm Elizabeth Sachs, and this is Monstrous Regiment. Today we will talk about parenting and power. Most of our parenting experiences we draw from our experiences as children and our parents' wisdom. So, a little bit about my background. As a child, I was raised in a strict conservative homeschool household. I grew up sheltered. My experiences and exposure were carefully limited. My parents taught us the doctrine of original sin. I grew up in an environment where it was assumed that children needed to be tamed or civilized. This mostly occurred through restrained exposure to music, movies, culture, and the world in general. This was accomplished through disciplines, spankings, edicts, house rules, and a carefully controlled environment where immediate obedience was demanded and withdrawal from the world and its ways was carefully modeled by my parents. Then, as an adult, I worked at a daycare and started going to college for early childhood education. During that time, I was also a liaison with the local school district for children transferring to kindergarten. I learned in that world that children were considered inherently morally neutral, and so we had to control their environment carefully. The blank slate theory treated children as empty vessels that we could fill to the brim with our ideal idea of knowledge. This occurred through careful exposure to preferred ideas, where predetermined materials were meant to foster desired behavior and thinking. This was accomplished through painstakingly planned lessons, encouraged experiences, discouraged experiences, the method being a culture where children learned to conform to the group from a very early age, or they would be left behind. Cooperation and assimilation was prized and expected. Brilliance and individuality was inconvenient at best. The only difference between these two worldviews was this, what emphasis power landed on in the environment. Was it power applied to limitation of ideas or proliferation of ideas? And the starting point for these theories also differed. One assumed that children would sin because of sin nature if the environment wasn't carefully confined to that which was deemed righteous. The other assumed that children were blank slates with no predisposition to do wrong, and because of this, they needed a carefully cultivated and curated existence where only the best ideas were readily available. The starting point may have differed some, but in reality, it was all different ends of the same spectrum, using adult power to control children's responses, their understanding, and their growth. I found, for my part, that both worldviews were shockingly compatible. My own starting point never changed. I just adapted the environment to fit my new understanding of what the environment ought to be for the children that I was teaching. When it came to problem behavior, the mechanism 
was always a reward or a punishment system in both approaches. In one, spankings for bad behavior was emphasized, privileges for good behavior was allowed. In the other, rewards or praise for good behavior was emphasized, timeouts were allowed. The same worldview, though, ultimately prevailed in different flavors. Children were viewed as problems to be solved, and coercion or raw displays of power, bribery, whatever was needed to elicit desired responses, ruled the day in both approaches. One approach, though, would call it obedience, and the other approach would call it cooperation. Both approaches, though, were environmentalism in different forms of expression. An external locus of control was the goal, so that we could externally control children's thoughts, feelings, and actions. One would be authoritarian and strict, the other permissive and protective, the goal being to change the environment around the child in order to change the child. One example of glaring environmentalism that made me scratch my head when I was in school um, was when I approached a professor professor about a problem with a child who was in my classroom at the daycare. Rather than address his behavior and the risk factors that indicated that he was struggling emotionally for a long period of time, she urged me to simply rearrange the furniture in my classroom. There's nothing inherently wrong with rearranging the furniture or moving the environment around to help a child, but this was her ultimate answer for his behavior. Her reasoning was that given no opportunity to hide um, behind desks or shelves or whatever, his behaviors would simply go away. But had his same behaviors manifested itself in a child in the community in which I grew up in, it probably would have resulted in swift retribution of the physical sort until it disappeared but was in reality repressed and never dealt with. These approaches focused on an external control for an internal problem. But the problem is, they both deny Jesus' own incisive statement that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes from his heart. Scripture is full of statements about the heart, such as, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. It doesn't say that God weighs the environment or that it's what we read, watch, or consume that defiles us. Rather, due to our sin nature, we will find sin bubbling up from within, and it's only a clean and renewed heart that will solve this problem. Ultimately, we can only get this new heart from God, not from a carefully constrained environment. This is not to say that parents shouldn't engage in age-appropriate boundaries and safeties for each child, but that as each child matures and grows, these boundaries act as a means to give the child an environment that they can safely and confidently explore the world around them so that parents can zero in on parenting what matters most, their heart. To be clear, it is a given that God gave children parents to keep them safe until adulthood while teaching them how to internalize truth and apply it. But God also gave parents and children liberty in doing so while working with the unique needs of each family 
and child. So the whole evangelical community as a whole generally rejects overtly humanist approaches to environmentalism in parenting. Unfortunately, though, we swallow hook, line, and sinker humanist garbage repackaged in a Christian bookstore format. When I was a young parent, a seasoned mother um, in a Bible study that I was in shared that she had found a wonderful parenting book when she was a young child called To Train Up a Child by Michael and Debbie Pearl. Unfortunately, she isn't the only parent to have recommended this book to me, and I often find their name dropped in conservative evangelical circles. Um, and sometimes I also find, if not their name, um, similar parenting approaches under someone else's name also put forward. And I would say that they're a common example of wicked child-rearing advice that is passed around by an alarming number of Christians because on the surface it seems biblical. Um, but in reality, what they teach is a system of Pavlovian tactics that have the goal of teaching a child to be adverse to disobedience and compliance and obedience. This goes directly against the grain of scripture no matter how many proverbs they may slap on the outside and twist to suit. Their advice in their books and their newsletters extends also to um, just as harmful advice um, for marriage or teaching children how to recognize and report abuse. So their book, To Train Up a Child, um, specifically says, training is, and I quote, training is the conditioning of the child's mind before the crisis arises. It is a preparation for future, instant, and unquestioning obedience. Their approach views children as animals or objects to conquer and advocates a method of conditioning um, that is violent and, in my opinion, downright psychopathic. In the book, they um, advocate for a dispassionate application of force on a crying or distressed child meant specifically to break their will or bend their needs to revolve around their parents' desires. And it's very ruthless of a child being disciplined in the book um, Pearl writes, if you have to sit on him to spank him, then do not hesitate and hold him there until he is surrendered. Defeat him totally. He compares children to animals outright and admits in an interview with Anderson Cooper that his concepts are not actually scriptural, but rather come from the compromised hogwash that he learned in his college classes. So um, I would say that it sounds alarmingly similar to Pavlov's own theories. So here's what he says to Anderson Cooper. You know, I live on a farm. I have horses and cows and chickens and pigs and all that sort of thing, and I read a lot. And I noticed that the zoologists and the people who work with animals study animals in terms of how it compares to human behavior. When I was in college and took a course in psychology, there was quite a few articles in there that dealt with animal behavior and how it compares to human behavior. So all I have said is that if you can train a stubborn mule to go up a hill when he doesn't want to go, then you can train your one or a two or a three-year-old child that gets stubborn. So the training principles are simple, similar. 
So yes, this is still Michael Pearl speaking, there's a parallel between training dogs, training horses, training cows, training chickens, training a turtle or a lizard. The principles are the same across the board, and any psychologist would tell you that's the case if they're familiar with animals. So not only does Michael Pearl's teaching rely on a cruel sort of environmentalism, it is downright violent brainwashing of innocent little people. And it denies a very basic truth from scripture about every human being, Imago Dei. We are created in God's image. Children are human beings. So they're created in the image of God, and it's easy for us as adults to think of them as lesser or under our power. There's a cultural idea that they're our possessions or created in our image, but these views are all problematic because they simply aren't rooted in truth. And because what we believe informs what we do, these views will always end in dehumanizing tyranny of one form or another. So, God created all men and women and children equal. They are equal in value, equal in image bearer and status, and regardless of a child's size, age, their ability to understand, they are God's creation meant to reflect his glory and not ours. Their image bearing status is in no way impacted by their development or their abilities. This should turn everything that we know about child rearing on its head. We, the church, have the unique idea, unique to us because of what scripture says, okay, that children have intrinsic value given to them by God. But pagan ideas consistently have devalued and dehumanized children, going all the way back to the barbaric practices in Rome that allowed a father to legally kill his children, penalty-free if he so chose to, the exploitation of child labor in the age of industry, and finally to the treatment of children as chattel at all times, attached to the parents' whims as property. When we reject these pagan approaches, suddenly everything looks very different in regards to children. And in this way, it's sad to note that sometimes the pagans in our world are way far ahead of the evangelical world in how they treat and view children. It's sad because the church has adopted their ideas and abandoned truth by and large when it comes to how we teach and view children. So scripture is full of admonitions on how to treat, teach children, I'm sorry. Um, two of the most famous, is, famous passages would be Ephesians 6 or Deuteronomy 6. Um, but Proverbs is also sprinkled with wisdom on child rearing, and the whole of scripture gives us a philosophy of discipleship and teaching in the context of the church and society as a whole that we can also apply um, as a principle to how we teach our children. So we are to bring up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord according to scripture, to teach them his law, to instruct them as we rise up, lay down, walk in the way. Our teaching is really to be a never-ending all-encompassing class and biblical ethics for our children. And scripture, though, while it gives us um, what we are to teach our children, it's really silent on how that's supposed to take place. There aren't any formulas given in scripture. So parents are given incredible liberty to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit and how they teach, rebuke, or equip each child as they go. 
if we can rely on God to lead us well in our lives, so can we not rely on him to teach us in our parenting? Cannot the Holy Spirit nudge, guide, hold us back, propel us forward, and give us a sensitivity in how we reach each child's heart in the hope that the Holy Spirit convicts and changes them? Children aren't projects, they're not animals, and they're not made in our image. They are unique image bearers created for God's purposes. And it's this truth that should make us very wary of parenting advice that promises to solve all of our problems. So, ultimately, parenting is a sanctification of both us and our children, and a process that makes us both, both parents and children, sensitive to the spirit and very aware of one another. Beware of any view of parenting that judges parents based on their success rate of children who follow Christ as well, because this is also in direct opposition to scripture and a product of environmentalism. In Ezekiel 18, God specifically deals with this, assuring us that it's nothing that we do that causes our children to follow him or not. He specifically states that it is the soul who sins shall die. A righteous man may have a wicked child, or a wicked man may have a righteous child. It's not your parentage that saves you. Um, furthermore, the proverb most often quoted in relation to parenting, actually the name of Michael and Debbie Pearl's book is, Train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. This is often used to justify all manner of power plays in the home, pressing your child into his preferred mold that you want him to be in. But in reality, this actually echoes the truth that Ephesians 2 hammers down, that it's not what man does that saves us, but it's God's grace. The way that he shall go is the way that God has purposed for each child and that God will prepare and equip him to go. So we train them faithfully, trusting God. So we need to carefully avoid a doctrine of works when it comes to our children walking by faith and trusting God, resting in his finished work ultimately. When we seek to ensure by our works that our children's hearts will turn to Christ, we are taking dominion that really isn't ours to take, and we're not resting in Christ. And that will always result in tyranny, whether it's in the home or the church or the government. It is so easy to recognize the yoke when it's sitting on our own shoulders um, in the church or the state, but we have to be really careful not to place a yoke on our children's shoulders, even in a desire to point them to Christ. We have to be able to rest on his ability to redeem and to act faithfully. Meanwhile, we are still doing our duty as to God and not unto our children, the Joneses, or anybody else's expectations of us. Parenting is ultimately an application of discipleship and the duty to parent God commands as ours. But the results of that parenting belongs to God. So when we resort to that tyranny and seek to regulate our children with raw displays of power, treating them as extensions of our will, our image, and our agenda, we're denying everything God has commanded us to do in regard to our children, especially in the area of discipleship. Let's consider what God says in Titus 2 in regards to teaching the church. The admonition here is to teach sound doctrine to those who are younger than us so that the gospel won't be blasphemed. So consider this wonderful little exhortation to men in particular. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity. 
ultimately, we're a model to those who are watching us. We're a model to our children. We're to show them what it is to actually be a follower of Christ in the most authentic way possible by living it in our own lives. That is where our work with our children ultimately begins. Secondly, we're not supposed to be angering them, exasperating them, abusing them. Um, I believe that word to exasperate children encompasses a lot more than just, like, you know, a kid going, <sighs> our position is not one of raw power. Our position is one of actually service. Our service begins um, with moms turning our bodies over to their material nurture as they grow. Um, mothers carrying their son or daughter, but fathers also turn their bodies over um, for material service to their children, um, providing for their needs. They spend days and, and hours on end earning money to provide for them. Then come the other material ways in which both parents love and serve our children. We endure sleepless nights with patient love. We change diapers. We feed them. We hold them. We love them. Our first, our very first acts for our children are rooted in service. And Christ modeled this for us, coming to us to serve. In Luke twenty two twenty seven. he says that. So as Paul urges us in Philippians 2, we are to consider others as more significant than ourselves. So does this mean that in considering our children as more significant than ourselves that they're supposed to rule our households? No. This means that we serve them in love, knowing their needs and their dependence on us, knowing that though we have the power in the situation, they are vulnerable and God has entrusted them to us. So... Lastly, um, when we're also parenting from a covenantal perspective, we are viewing our children as disciples because we're viewing that God has placed them in covenantal families by his sovereign hand. We teach them. We equip them for every good work. Our role isn't to browbeat them into believing, living, and doing as we do, um, obeying our every whim for our own agenda, but to propel them upward and onward giving them every opportunity to grow as someone in the household of faith and teaching them whatsoever Christ has commanded. We do this in the hope that the Holy Spirit will penetrate their little hearts with truth and draw them to God. So I think now is as good a time as any to note that I am not saying that children are sinless um, or that they should rule the home or that they're inherently good or that they never need exhausting mind-boggling, emotionally draining love. Um, these human beings that God has given us are created in his image, and they reflect whatever facet of his glory that he's designed them to go into the world to do. Our first view of them is not one of idealism, but it's also not one of grim determination to bend them to our will. Our first view of them is that it is a heavy responsibility to steward them. We are caring for God's image bearer to his glory. We're nurturing, equipping, and teaching them to live life as human beings who have been given a purpose by God. Not a purpose to obey, serve, and honor me. Our authority over our children is derived from service to God. And it is God who rules in our homes not the parents or the children. Note that Ephesians 6 tells children to obey their parents in the Lord. This caveat is so important in that 
their obedience is insofar as we are teaching, rebuking, and guiding them in service to God. The world, like, projects this image of parents and children on film. The, the parents are absent, stupid, unethical, misguided. The children are wise and all-knowing, always rebelling righteously as they come of age. So, as a child, I viewed this differently as a parent. Um, from, from a child's point of view, this inspired me. From a parent's point of view, it kind of made me suspect, you know, like, what, what are they doing here? And a little terrified. Um, but now that I see it through the lens of scripture, that as children grow in wisdom, maturity, and discernment, rebellion is not in and of itself an unethical act. But, the, so, the worldview of the unavoidably rebellious team who will rebel indiscriminately is just as wicked as the church's idea of an unquestioningly obedient teen who will obey indiscriminately. So teacher, scripture teaches that opposition to tyranny is necessary where it exists, even in the home. Jonathan, uh, for instance, did not follow his father, King Saul, into sin against David, but he obeyed God. Um, and so we ought to view teenage rebellion from an ethical perspective, where rebellion is sin when it is rebellion against righteous truth, but necessary when it comes to tyranny and oppression. Um, so rather than outright banning Hollywood ideas of parent-child relationships or any story that would view the child as an all-knowing protagonist and the parent as a, a foolish, bubbling idiot, um, we can use them as a teaching tool to recognize righteous obedience to God on the part of a parent, even unbelieving ones who don't know that they're obeying God, or recognize tyrannical decrees, even well-meaning ones, on the part of parents in the stories. Because ultimately, literature and teaching children their own stories is not trying to make parents out to be wicked or fools, but is giving children a point of view from the place of the protagonist to face these things in their own lives. It's not inundating them with some two-dimensional idea that all parents are wicked. Okay, so when you as a family take time to read books together, or we as a family take time to read books together like Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter, um, or view films together like for young children, maybe Little Mermaid or Moana, you can, with little ones, pick apart each aspect as a family and analyze it together and discuss these things. Or as they get older into teenagers, they can read those books or view and analyze films like the black panther or footloose with their parents because when we do these things with them we can help them understand and process the dilemmas that they're going to face as they come of age and the culture around them and how it views those dilemmas so we can teach them to be little bereans holding these things side by side and saying what does scripture say about this this means that for each age and stage for each unique child, we can take different approaches. We shouldn't assume that because they're young, they're incapable of understanding uh, those movies or stories um, or anything really, um, the things that are happening in their lives and applying truth to the world around them. Scripture itself doesn't pull any punches and it exposes all ages to some very difficult truth. It's the most graphic of accounts, the most violent of histories, the most baldly descriptive in showing sin and how it destroys and God and how he redeems. Our societies 
it shows how our societies are impacted by truth in the past on small and large scales alike. And if we are to be teaching this to our children every day, then we must beware the idea that one day they'll be ready and withhold difficult topics until they're older. We can still teach them the whole of scripture in whatever age and stage that they're in, in an age-appropriate fashion, um, rather than excising bits until we as parents think that they're allowed to know. Um, but we can bring it to bear together as we experience the cultural influences in and outside of our home. Um, so from a very early age, for instance, I will teach my children to frame the world and the understanding that God made them. That's the first thing that we teach them is, who made you? God made me. Um, this is, even my two-year-old can say this, this is a foundational truth that we begin to assert, you know, God made you. He has the right to make law. You have the responsibility as his creation to obey it. Um, so even the youngest children can understand the whole of the Ten Commandments with this foundational perspective. We can use the precept of God's creation of their bodies, knowing that God gave them bodies and gave them right and wrong use of them in order to teach them what they can and can't do and what self-control looks like. This foundational thinking can even be used to teach children about really difficult concepts like sexual assault from a biblical perspective. And as an aside, I really recommend the book, God Made All of Me, for even your little ones to discuss um, sexual abuse with them. So children are not stupid, and God has given them amazing perception to understand what is right and wrong in the form of their conscience. We shouldn't deny them the opportunity for a robust spiritual immune system. We practice a wise exposure to sin, teaching them to fight, discern, and apply truth to each temptation that pass passes through their passionate little hearts. Um, even my two-year-old, she knows what stealing is when somebody steals from her. The trouble is teaching her what it is when she does it to them. That instruction can begin as soon as they are able to speak. Our goal is to learn to teach them how to self-govern, listening to their God-given consciences and applying truth in their lives. And the cool thing is, being children, they often do so in ways that might surprise or delight us because they are not yet crippled by pride in their experience. Um, they can be applying that truth in practical ways as creatively as they like. So I was reading an article the other day and it absolutely thrilled me. Um, there was a, a mom and she wrote this article describing how her um, son at his Montessori school, the children are, are kept in a safe environment. Um, it, it's, it's somewhat, it's controlled in a way that allows them still to govern themselves. And so the children at her son's Montessori school worked out a barter system to trade toys in an unregulated free market. They applied economics with skill and perception that most adults I know don't have. Um, so according to an internalized rule that the children had of treat others as you wish to be treated, they worked out an honor system. They learned how to avoid unscrupulous dealers in their little network and learned that dealing fairly, fairly was its own reward. So without explicit instruction... Um, in this environment, I'm not 100 on whether or not it was secular or not. They followed their consciences to establish an economic community with their liberty and their autonomy. So children's lives might look inconsequential from our perspective of all the important adult pursuits, but their play is their work. And in their play, they practice for life. 
We think nothing of buying a child a doll, a building toy, or a doctor kit. These things are things that allow them to explore different roles or ideas or application for a practical truth that we expect them to play out. So why aren't we doing this with God's law? We are supposed to be equipping them. We need to teach them to listen to their God-given conscience, to learn God's revelatory law, and to apply it in every aspect of their life. So our goal in teaching is not to squash the beautiful individuality that God gave them, but to help it bloom as they grow in self-control and self-government. Some limited examples of this in my own home are, are my son. He's a gregarious and busy little guy. Um, he's more curious than malicious. So in his five years, we have gone from a complete lack of self-control. He was a runner when he was two. Um, if you looked the other way for a second, he'd be gone. Um, to an ability now at five to hear me say, you need to have self-discipline or we will have mom discipline. He is able at that point to evaluate which he would rather, righteous self-government or mom government under God. He knows what's expected of him. He knows what God's laws are and what my responsibility as a parent is before God. And he knows what's right and wrong. His only decision in that moment is, will I choose what is right and have liberty um, in doing what is right? Or will I endure the consequences of doing what is wrong? He's also physically a uh, pretty smart little guy. Um, when he was little, like around two years old, um, my parents insisted that we buy him a balance bike. So the I, they were really, really into it, and they helped us get one for him. And my mom told me that training wheels would delay his competence, and it was better to teach him balance intentionally than to follow the old method of taking away the helps and letting him figure it out on his own without those helps. So we used the balance bike. He lost no time in figuring out how to make it move as quickly as possible, Um and when he was ready, he seamlessly moved to a normal two-wheel bike with pedals without any problems. His body already knew what to do, and he was ready for the next challenge, having mastered the last one the way God made his body to work. So this is an example of how we can teach them God's law. It was a breakthrough in thinking for me because I realized God designed their little brains and their bodies to move from one skill to the next, and he did the same with their consciences. We as parents have an opportunity to serve them as they change and grow in each stage and age. It's not a frustration point of why can't you do this or why can't you just listen or do what I want. It's a perfectly created opportunity to teach them what's next. It isn't that our children don't need our guidance, but that God designed the order and the focus of that guidance for each individual child at their pace and their level. He designed their development and their needs. And we, as parents, in serving them, respond to those needs and respond to that development at an individual pace and level. So instead of pressing them to shape with our power and might to be just like every other kid that age, we have the ability to follow along, supporting how God ordained their growth and their means of learning. So as they grow even older, we can continue to give them freedom to explore the application, not only of God's word, but also of their unique skills and abilities. More assertion of power as they grow often comes in the form of schooling, forcing our children to meet state standards or to conform to a socialistic idea of their persons and expressions of intelligence. Think state testing. <laughs> um, but this is not what God designed them for. He didn't want them to spend years toiling behind a pencil, um, doing any busy work that an adult deems necessary in a soul-crushing exercise in submission to the domination of man. 
he didn't expect them to only read wholesome stories where everything ends perfectly and the world is predictable or to master ideas and concepts in an adult dominated environment rather than explore the world with a growing understanding of God's truth and the support of their parents. We can turn this idea of education on its head, ultimately, just as we have with discipline. So we can teach each child to love learning, to explore interests, to discern truth, and view stories as an expression of the world around us. Learning the effects of sin, the right action in the face of sin, we can urge children to seek out knowledge instead of regurgitating pagan forms of schooling and expectations in our homes. We can teach them that we are free in Christ to give them the tools and the means to follow the passions that God has given them, encouraging and equipping them to recognize their own gifts and develop them. We can let them be free to explore different forms of mediums of expression. We can let them read stories that teach and stretch their understanding of the world. Um, one of my favorite things is uh, doing read-alouds with my older children. Some ones that we've done recently that allowed us to recognize and discuss application of truth were um, Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain and Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Our goal in educating and discipling our children is not to create copies of ourselves or little minions in our own little kingdom, but to raise up a new generation of Christ followers who are ready to do kingdom work independently, to self-govern with wisdom and discernment, having already been challenged, rebuked, sharpened all throughout their growing years at their age level. We encourage them to mature into capable adults who have been practicing all along to bring truth to bear in their lives. Eventually, when they're ready, we will have to get out of the way as they go on to whatever purpose God has already prepared for them. So we are not given these blessings of children to beat them into submission, into grace, soulless automatons, meant to reflect our twisted and perverted idea of glory and power, corrupted by our selfish agenda and mindlessly obedient to whatever master is willing to conquer them, because do we not realize how this perspective sets them up for failure and abuse throughout their entire lives? We cannot control and curate their environment perfectly, making children that should be kept in boxes for the remainder of their lives in case the dangerous world might, you know, encroach on them or seduce them. We are commanded instead to raise empowered soldiers of King Jesus, arrows to be shot out into the world, sharp and bright with the fire of passion for their purpose before God, able to oppose tyranny, advocate for the weak and the oppressed, unencumbered by a lack of imagination and a burden of blind obedience, or crippled by an inability to function in the battle because we never prepared them for the battle. We need to actively teach them instead to be able to live a God-honoring life without our oversight or our careful attempts to make them into a little pleasant prison to forever practice their ineffective pietism while waiting for the bus to come to take them home to heaven. The world isn't a pure flicks menu. It's not sanitized and cultivated only to work with gentle sensibilities that carefully avoid anything gross or difficult or uncomfortable. The world is gritty realism, sin spooled out, broken bodies, hearts, and lives intertwined with corruption and seductive power. So why would we ever cripple our children by hiding the truth from them and teaching them that the only power they have is in hiding 
from what is terrible until they can leave safely. God has given us every opportunity to slowly expand their experiences and the ability to discern wisely, with us as parents purposefully broadening their world. We teach them from early on to confront, analyze, and neutralize sin and the suppression of truth. We do this by talking like lions, watching and reading and comparing age-appropriate mediums to the Word of God, growing little Bereans who aren't fooled by a superficial appearance of Christianity or dazzled by an attractive siren call of the forbidden. They know where sin ends and what it does. And having destroyed the seductive mystery of sin long ago, we should be equipping them to see the subtle and call out the hidden also, it can be placed under Christ's feet in victory. So we are wrong to treat them as wild monsters to tame, rather than seeing them as beautiful arrows that we can aim, created by an almighty God to do his will and build his kingdom. We ought to take the tack of the knights of old, teaching them to hold a sword with their chubby little hands and swing it with their scrawny little arms and trust them to grow in might and strength the more they wield that sword. We begin, yes, with straw men in static saddles and stationary shields in little practice yards. Then we move on to sparring with friends, cutting their teeth on the little concepts, and then mastering the bigger ones. But we do not hide them from the world, turning them loose suddenly when they hit 18 with no knowledge of what is out there, and worse, having abdicated our duty to teach them God's laws and how to confront sin applying those laws in their own lives. It would be cruel to hammer our children down to fit into an assembly line, using our power to cut away and flatten out the brilliance that has been given to them by God. We are commanded to sharpen them, to polish them and aim them exactly where God intended, by serving, equipping, and building them up to complete His will in His kingdom, doing His work. So we have to be careful not to be like the parents that we see over and over again in film. In Moana, for instance, we see a growing child as the protagonist. She's learning traditions from her parents, but she's facing problems as she grows that require she breaks those traditions in an act of sacrificial love for her people. She must disobey her father's rigid rules that to stay away from the sea and in order to do what will save their entire um, people from starvation. So let's consider Moana's father. He's encouraging her to stay static, just moving on, repeating the actions of the generations past and urging her to obey blindly, ignoring the call that she's heard to correct the wrongs of the past. But to Moana's credit, she grew up maturing and listening to the wisdom of her grandmother. She goes on to correct those, those wrongs at a personal cost changing the future of her people ultimately and saving them. I think in this movie, too, um, the ocean is a magnificent picture of how the Holy Spirit propels and equips us for our God-given purpose. Um, it doesn't do Moana's work for her, but it nudges her and helps her and assists her and gives her direction. Um, so far from being a solely pagan movie, Moana accidentally stumbles on a wealth of truth about parenting and coming of age. Her father could have helped her accomplish her task instead of working against her, allowing her to learn the skills she would have needed to protect her life. But 
Instead, he forbid, forbid her from the dangerous and costly sacrifices that she needed to care for her people. He, he could have helped her prepare for those, those challenges. Then, in The Little Mermaid, we have Ariel's dad, the king, who instead he forbids her instead of equipping her and showing her the dangers and how to combat them but he increases the enticement of sin through some angry mystery he just holds everything off at arm's length it's no wonder that his daughter nurtures her rebellion and hid her intentions from him going to a wicked sea witch to complete her seduction into the destructive Disney, unfortunately, gives this cautionary tale a happy spin at the end, but the original did not have that happy spin. It, Disney excises the consequences of Ariel's choice to do what she desired, in the end, giving up her life for her own self-fulfillment, which never materializes. So we want our children to be like Moana, or King T'Challa in the Black Panther, who's been thrust on the throne by his father's unexpected death. He's able to discern, recognize, and take dominion over the legacy of his forefathers. He's able to recognize their sin and correct it with wisdom and truth. Ultimately, we want children to build on our legacy and to go above and beyond what we have done. We want them to correct our mistakes and surpass our knowledge, and we want children who outgrow us. We will make mistakes in parenting. We are human beings incapable of perfection in raising these little people. And we cannot ever hope to make an environment in this corrupt world that will guarantee that. But we trust in a mighty God who can carry them into his purpose for them. We have no formula to make sure that our children are Christ followers. We shouldn't ask ourselves how best to use our power over our children to externally control them forever, forcing them to be the people that we want them to be. Instead, we ought to be asking ourselves how we can serve them to help them internalize and live out the truth of Scripture. We can be faithful in training them, in challenging them, in preparing them, in obedience to God all along, knowing that the results are ultimately in his good hands. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.